In Atlanta, Maynard Jackson felt the weight of morality on his side. Such changes he knew had to be made. As a matter of principle, he also refused to set foot inside the Piedmont Driving Club as long as blacks were unable to join as members. When invited to a function at the driving club, he sent a letter asking that the site be changed. Sometimes it was. He governed with total fidelity to such principles and the results were beginning to show. In 1975, the percentage of city contracts in Atlanta awarded to minorities reached 5%. As Chamber of Commerce president, Ivan Allen III tried to mediate in the airport struggle between the white businessmen and the black mayor. Welcome to the Atlanta Legacy Makers podcast. I'm Floyd Hall here in downtown Atlanta at Atlanta City Hall. This is episode six of the podcast that corresponds to part six of the Gary M. Pomerantz book, Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, A Saga of Race and Family. You heard Gary's voice in the open. Part six of Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn is entitled Black City Government. And in this episode, we have a great conversation with Dr. Kalinda Lee of the Atlanta History Center and some additional perspective from Tiffany Atwater Lee, no relation, of the Atlanta University Center, Robert W. Woodruff Library. This is a full episode, so let's jump right into my conversation with Kalinda Lee. Kalinda Lee. I serve as the Vice President for Historical Interpretation and Community Partnerships at the Atlanta History Center. Um, sometimes I refer to myself as a recovering academic. <laughs> um, and my work in the world is to really explain how the past has continuing relevance um, to help us understand the present and how we can use that to plan for a better future. Well, thank you, uh, Kalinda, for that. And just starting off with the text, uh, Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, uh, you are familiar with this text, but um, in terms of revisiting uh, this part of the book, this is this is part six, entitled Black City Government. And I guess just, just starting uh, from a, a, a big picture perspective, what were some of your initial impressions upon revisiting this text? Yes, you know, this is such an interesting question to think about what it feels like now to revisit this text after having first read it uh, when it was first published. And I think, you know, the first time I read it, I was a newcomer to Atlanta history. (laughs) And so I was really just hungry to kind of glean information. Okay, so who were the people and what were they doing? And, and, And really to put Maynard's, uh, mayorship into context. But, Goodness, you know, 20-something, 30 years later, um, as I revisited this section, um, a few things really struck me that had not 
initially, maybe because I understand more about Atlanta history, um, maybe because I understand more about contemporary Atlanta. Um, and so one of the things that came up for me was the way in which this um, section really treats Maynard um, as a personality, and certainly he deserves a special treatment. He was a special personality, right? But I think that the context out of which he grew, not just as an individual, but also kind of all the people who were acting around him, all of the grassroots activism um, and advocacy and um, demand for equality and the realities of white flight from inner cities um, in the late 60s and early 70s, all of that really came into high relief for me. And so I was struck by some of the the conversation of the time and even of the time that the book was published. So say, for example, um, there was a lot of conversation about Maynard sometimes being, I think what could well be described in the book is kind of intemperate, like pushing really hard for African-American um, inclusion, particularly economic inclusion at higher levels, right? Uh, city contracts, um, airport construction in particular, those kinds of things. And I was struck by the way that the baseline, the always already, we don't need to question this or really deeply problematize this, was this notion of disproportionate white dominance and power in those spheres. So all of our conversations about Maynard and other black elected officials or would-be elected officials as well were within the context of how um, how they were good politicians or not good politicians in speaking to that. But there wasn't really a deep-seated question about what does this mean? What does this look like? Why is it not okay for our starting off place? to be a place of deep historical and continued inequity. And I think, you know, maybe that was an especially high relief as I look to the conversations that we're having today and the ways in which, you know, folks are saying, we don't want to start those conversations in that place. Um, it, it is not too much to ask and to demand that we start a conversation from a space of saying, what would equity look like? Okay, how do we get there as quickly as humanly possible. Um, so, so that, you know, that's a kind of big, long answer for you. But I think that's the thing that kept coming up for me again and again as I was rereading this section of the book. Taking a bit of what you mentioned as far as the starting point um, for conversations, it, it seemed that Maynard was very purposeful in, in what he believed that he could do and very purposeful in sort of pushing and prodding for people around him to get in line with that vision. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree wholeheartedly. There is one other thing that I want to say, and I hope, you know, I don't want to unduly and overly focus um, only on white audiences because I think that that's the perspective from which most of this has been addressed anyway, even in the writing. But I think that one other thing that really struck me that I meant to mention before is um, th that came up when you asked that previous question is that when Maynard showed himself 
right, in the ways that he was, not only in, in his political um, planning, right, in, in terms of policy and all of those things, but also in terms of his personality, in terms of the family that he came from and what that kind of instilled in him, in terms of his demeanor. Um, that, that gaze into African-Americanness, looking at you and saying, this is where I'm coming from, this is what I'm demanding, yes, you will comply um, with these contracting regulations and et cetera, and putting people in place who were also saying that, right? Because it wasn't just Maynard and City Hall. It was that he was appointing people in all of these other positions that then you had to deal with, that you had to move through, um, that you had to submit your paperwork to, all of which was completely anathema to folks who had any access to power, white folks who had any access to power before that. That shift in some ways was not just about equalizing like access to resources, right? When we talk about equality, we're talking about can you access this and can I access, but also equalizing an understanding of one another as, as human beings who you just are going to have to work with and deal with, that had never been the case before. Black people, as my grandmother used to say, have always known white people. The nature of the inequity was that black folks worked in white people's houses. Black folks worked for white people in various ways. Black people have been kind of forced to wear a mask, right? I mean, there's that famous poem about it, we wear the mask. But white people did not have to do that. So there was an inequity there where white people were kind of showing themselves, saying what they thought, doing what they wanted to do all the time. But black people's inner lives, black people's thoughts and actions and ambitions and without that mask, that was not something that was well known to black people. And so this also marked a shift in that reality. Right, to even be in this town car or Lincoln or whatever it was with Maynard and be having these conversations and watching how he dealt with this situation and watching how he went to sleep or how he jumped up and was charismatic. All of that was a whole new world in a conversation about equity. And so that was kind of mind-blowing to me, too, as I looked at this again and thought, oh, yeah, like, these are people who have not had any peer relationships whatsoever with people who look dissimilar to them in this way. That was not the case for us. You know, that was not going to say us because I'm an African-American woman, but that was not the case for African-Americans. So, you know, whether you went to Spelman or Morehouse or whatever, you were likely off to some other school where you were going to be in a minority. You were off to sing opera in Europe where it wasn't going to be all about your background and experience. That has been the reality of African-Americans um, that was entirely unfamiliar to white power brokers. And it was intimidating. It seemed as though he had a tremendous amount of political will uh, to to really advocate for these things. And I guess the the backstory of that feels very interesting for this moment because I guess as someone who grew up in Atlanta, all you really sort of see is the is the results of that. You really sort of see names on buildings, you see people in positions, but this book really highlighted, I think, for me, a lot of the the how that happened and 
it was very interesting to to see the i guess the the minutia of that if if you will and when we talk about Maynard's political will um and and how he came to power right we were looking at this context where um Maynard is perceived as this upstart and so we know that there's going to be a black mayor sooner or later, right? Cities around the United States are blackening, right? There's white flight from this, the, the central city. So this disproportionate representation and power among only whites governing an increasing number of, black, of African-Americans and whites having moved out of the city, we know that that's going to give way. Um, but there's a notion, right, that that regime change is going to happen in a particular way with the sanction of not only certain white political and economic elites, but also certain African-American political and economic elites. And so when Maynard first comes to the fore to say, I want to be mayor, they say it's not his turn yet, right? It's not his time. Um, I will say to you that that is um, an interesting particular story to Atlanta, the Maynard story, but it is not a unique story. Um, you see this time and time again. I happen to be from Baltimore, Maryland, and um, the same exact conversation happens more than a decade later with Kurt Schmoke um, ascending to the mayorship. So this is a pattern in national politics. And I think it's always interesting to look at how Atlanta is unique, but also how Atlanta in certain ways is representative of a bunch bigger story. So when Maynard comes um, to say that he wants to be mayor and to start campaigning for that, he's at odds at first, not only with the white establishment, but also with the African-American establishment. And I think that's really important to dig into, right? Black folks aren't all one thing. Black folks don't all think one way. And the interests of black folks are diverse. And so, you know, it was useful for me to remember that when my, though Maynard came from um, some folks like to call, you know, kind of black royalty, right, or Albert Avenue royalty, um, in some ways being a Dobbs. In other ways, Maynard is really distinct in breaking from that to say who I'm really going to be, uh, certainly in his first campaign, especially who I'm going to be as a champion for and a voice for um, the working class folks in this town. And so a big part of what sweeps him in is his stated interest in addressing issues like, um, we wouldn't call it income equality at the time, but we would have called it, like you know, jobs, fair jobs and living wages um, and um, honoring labor contracts, right? He took the, the sanitation workers part against, as vice mayor, against his mayor, um, Sam Massell at the time, right? So there are all of these things that make him kind of the people's champion and that bring him to power as the people's champion. It's interesting in retrospect that some of the ways that he's been critiqued have been um, to have been called out as uh, a champion for a sort of um, equality, if you will, a sort of pushing that benefited an elite population of African-Americans but ne didn't necessarily really change the tide uh, for poor and working class people. So it's an interesting irony and contradiction. Um, and I think it's always something that we have to think about when we talk about who he's a champion of or what he's trying to change or what equality he was seeking. Um, and, and for that matter, anybody, we have to think in multiple and layered ways. We can't just say, 
for black folks or white folks, whatever. There are a variety of issues that we have to consider in terms of that. Well, I think that the critiques around maybe who all benefited from Maynard's tenure as as mayor, at least the the first the first tenure um, as mayor, um, in my mind that makes me think about policy and who was most likely to benefit from policies in the the quickest sense. So if you're talking about city contracts and going from less than one percent to twenty five percent of city contracts going to African Americans, then you're talking about people who are in business. And so you're talking about people who have to be business ready or at a certain level of being business ready to be able to, I guess, take advantage of that level of engagement with city government. So those are the people who most easily benefit the earliest, I guess. And I think it takes a little bit more from a policy standpoint to maybe dig into the weeds of of what it means for a lot of the working class citizens of Atlanta um, and, and what it means for their benefit when it comes to mayor's, uh, I mean, when it comes to Maynard's um, mayoral term. Um, and I guess to stay there a little bit, when going back to this notion of of whose time was it, or is not quite Maynard's time yet, or there was a bit of a informal line of, of secession, um, do you have any sense of who, I guess, who the other folks in contention for black government seats were representing um, as it relates to Atlanta's blackness? Hmm. Well, I think that there are a lot of parts to that statement in question. So um, when you think about what it means to make change and to make change quickly and on whose behalf, um, I think that that's an, that's an interesting question to raise and way to look at it because then you can see kind of who the champions were for those various causes and, and, and interests. So, for example, um, a lot of folks would say, you know, representation matters, period, right? And so there were folks who had already been deeply engaged in trying to ensure that African Americans had political power, basic political power. Like, I can go to the polls, I can cast my vote, I can believe that my vote's going to be counted, I won't be hindered from casting that vote, I have some voice in my own representation. And there were people who were fighting very hard to make that happen, and also people who were, um, who had ascended to power as that was was more and more realized. And so the person whose name um, immediately comes to mind for me, for example, is Leroy Johnson, who had been serving um, as a legislator and who, in fact, did even try to run against Maynard for that first term, right? So there was certainly some concern that Leroy Johnson would be the logical uh, first black mayor of Atlanta, having served in an elected position for, for so long. And the kinds of things that he was fighting for, um, in addition to political power, not only in Atlanta, but these are, you know, through the state of Georgia, right? And that includes things like what, what will funds be allocated towards? Who will get, you know, equitable access to schooling dollars um, or any access to schooling dollars? How will people be hired for um, um, basic jobs throughout city government, throughout state government, and beyond, right, in the private sector? Who can lean on folks in order to do that? So all of these kinds of questions that have real tangible implications for people, quite frankly, across class, um, very much a... Um, a compromise-focused politician, right? That's what 
I'm going to reach across this aisle. I'm going to get X, Y, and Z done. And sometimes you had to make what many folks felt like were some pretty unholy alliances in terms of, of, of that. Um, so that's one direction. Another direction in terms of power, not necessarily to, to contend against Maynard for the mayorship, but in terms of holding power, would be business interests. And while there are certainly um, white-dominated business interests that continue really to be significant, sometimes definitive, in Atlanta, like Coca-Cola, right, and Robert Woodruff, you also have, at that time, the Atlanta Life Insurance Company, and Jesse Hill in particular, who was the kingmaker and breaker as far as black folks were concerned, right? And he did certain kinds of things um, like, you know, his, his endorsement or disapproval was incredibly significant. The campaign funds that he not only would supply but also um, withhold were incredibly significant. There's a story that I was told, it's not in the book, but I think it's really relevant here. I was told this by someone who had been very high up in um, the Atlanta Life Insurance Company, worked their way from this kind of secretarial pool to a vice presidency. And they were talking about how at first, you know, we know the story in the book about how Jesse Hill was not, um, was did not approve of Maynard's um, ambition to become mayor at the time that he did it first. Um, and then and and then he changed his mind, right? He was persuaded otherwise. But one of the things that this person told me about was how Jesse Hill was simultaneously talking to the white power brokers, particularly business interests, um, about how, you know, we need to be really careful about this. I'm not so sure. You know, maybe I can talk him down. And at the same time, he was letting Atlanta Life Insurance um, employees come in, clock in, so they were earning their salaries, and then go out and register black voters. And those were black voters who would then go to the polls and vote Maynard in as mayor. So there's, there's a lot of different kinds of conversations happening about what power means um, and, and who gets ultimately to determine what political power is going to look like in Atlanta. And it doesn't just look like who is actually going to sit in the seat as mayor. It is also not a conversation that black folks can have alone, right, regardless of the demographics of the city. And I think that Pomerantz does a really good job of reminding us, like, you need the Ivan Allens. <laughs> um, and I say that plurally in attention, right? You need Junior and three. Um, they also, he, you know, he needed certain um, support from the white business community or at least not push back in certain ways. They needed the white scholars. All of those things were really deeply important as well. Um, so I think that there's all of that, and and I would just say also I wanna I wanna push back a little bit if you if you'll have me um, do that if you'll um, allow that Floyd because I think that you know sometimes when we talk about whose time it is or who is positioned to benefit from um, particularly you know political or policy decisions. Um, we need to make sure that we look at all the various layers of that benefit, right? So certainly when you're talking about certain kinds of economic policy, like minority contractors, that was a very big deal, right? As, as you mentioned, and middle-class folks who had already been educated, who were already business owners, who were already, in many ways, absolutely they were better positioned to take advantage of those things than they did. But those people also needed workforces, right? 
And so those people stood to benefit in terms of who the employees were of those concerns. Those people also had to go home at night, all of them, and deal with policing that was going to be explicitly hostile or maybe be a little bit more concerned about protecting and serving. Um, those people, I mean, Atlanta had been a police force where, you know, a good percentage of the police department actually were card-carrying members of the Ku Klux Klan. So to shift policy in terms of what that looked like was significant on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I, you know, when you're thinking about whether or not the workers for the city government would have a fair wage, and part of the reason that the, the sanitation workers strike um, ultimately was such a, depending on your perspective, um, uh, indication of Maynard's uh, maturity as a politician or a real stain on his credibility as a, as a mayor of the people was that those questions of, you know, a fair wage for hourly workers and those kinds of things, those are things that impact the day-to-day -day life of a large percentage of the people who would be living in a city. So all of those things ultimately had to work together. Um, and I think that they're, they're all interconnected. So even if you're talking about something like, you know, minority contracts, there's a portion in the book where they talk about architects um, for Hartsfield, what became ultimately Hartsfield-Jackson Airport, and how um, white politicians and business leaders were complaining that we have to give these contracts or a percentage of them to African-Americans, to black folks, and they aren't prepared for it. They don't have these architectural firms. They're not educated in this way. And I was screaming out loud as I was reading this, well, of course they didn't because they've been barred from your school. Uh, of course they didn't because you passed legislation that kept them out of the University of Georgia system. So all of these things are deeply interrelated. And where you jump in as a mayor and decide this is where I can move the needle, well, that's, that's a really interesting question. Well, I think that's a, a great way to expand how we think about that because I think as all of these layers of our society are interconnected, um, I think it's important to, to think about how in a very intimate way one does affect the other. So I, I thank you for, for adding some, some context to that. Um, I would love for you to maybe highlight one or two sections of this part of the book that jumped out to you. And I guess even before we do that, just kind of give you a, a chance to kind of get your, your mind right um, on which sections you want to highlight. I did want to bring up that in this part of the book, we do sort of see um, – well, I guess there there are two other mayors that are prominent in this part of the book. There was Sam Massell, who immediately preceded uh, Maynard Jackson. Maynard was his vice mayor. And then we see Andy Young, um, who yeah. immediately comes after Maynard Jackson. So I wonder if you could say some words about how Sam Massell is portrayed in this book, as well as how Andy Young is portrayed in this book. A few years ago, I was looking through some archival material at the Atlanta History Center. And I came across um, some of those, those campaign signs from Sam Massell, Atlanta's Too Young to Die. And of course, I had read this, where Petrie um, meets Sweet Auburn, and also, you know, many other um, texts over the years 
describing that. And yet looking at those um, campaign signs still took my breath away. Um, And what it called to mind for me was the way in which Atlanta, not unlike so many other uh, American cities, was deeply engaged by the late 1960s, really, in a war for ownership of the spoils of the city, right? So we know that the the factors that were producing white flight, those were factors that were happening all over the nation. And quite frankly, there was really not much that anybody could have done about it from the mayor's seat. I mean, if you look coast to coast, north to south, um, what you're experiencing, you know, everything from interstate highway growth to federal loans, subsidizing suburban building, um, particularly for white Americans, um, given redlining practices that made that more difficult for blacks. Uh, the, there, there are all of these factors that are propelling people and a strong tax base out of the city, we've got these dwindling populations, not just growing populations of African-Americans, there's a dwindling population, period, across the board, in the center cities. And Sam Massell seizes upon that moment, right, his campaign, and ultimately you are responsible for your own campaign, seizes upon white flight, seizes upon this notion of darkening cities, seizes upon this notion somehow that African-American prosperity necessarily means that whites will be um, endangered in some way, both in terms of economic security and physical security. And And he projects that onto Atlanta, right? If you don't vote for me, then our city is going to go this way. And that that campaign approach was only taken up after it became clear that Maynard Jackson, who was articulating that he was going to be this champion, not only for African-Americans, but for working class people, was clearly the man to be. So you cannot look at that context and accept the argument that it wasn't racialized. It was certainly racialized. And I think that it doesn't matter so much whether your complete and direct intention is to cause racial strife. We are responsible for the things that we put out into the world, the things that we know, the impacts that we know that they might have, even if that is not our first intention, right? We, If I know that if I engage in this way or if I say this sort of thing, it's going to be a dog whistle. I have a responsibility not to blow it. Literally, I have a responsibility not to blow that whistle. I think the other thing that's really interesting as we look at Sam Massell in this section of the book and think about um, his role in this particular campaign against Maynard Jackson is the way in which he is positioned as kind of this last bastion of economic hope for the city. Right, so there's this assumption that the interest of working class people and and certainly the interest of African Americans, without looking very closely at any of the details of what those interests might be at all, are somehow anathema to a rising tide which could lift all boats. 
So there is this automatic assumption that business interests and African-American interests must be at odds. But we know, of course, is this kind of context of the Atlanta way that preceded it, that that doesn't have to be the case, certainly with black elites, and it might not necessarily have to be the, the case with um, with poor and working class folks either. Um, that, that it's not questions. It's not really problematized. Um, there's just this assumption that folks jump jump into. And it's interesting to me, um, when I was rereading this, I had completely missed this the first time around, that there seems to be um, – this 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 goo that has stuck to Marcel, right? He 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 mentions in the book that years later he would you know share the campaign slogan completely out of context with people who were unfamiliar with Atlanta or its politics, and see they all said, I don't see why that would be racial. I think that the fact that there's a need to keep bringing it up in this way um, further validates the fact that unfortunately it very much was. Um, a campaign about about racial stereotyping and race baiting, and so um, in this section of the book, that that is really um, a major focus. There, um, it's important to me typically to think about politicians in terms of what they do or what they don't do, um, about about their policies, right, about their stances, but. I think that in this section of the book, the lion's share of the energy is really spent focusing on on Maynard's ascendance to the mayor's seat. And you can't separate that particular ascendance from the fact that he was the first. So there's a really, there's a way that we lean hard into this because that is what's on everybody's lips because that's what everybody's thinking about because they're thinking about not just this man, but that this man signifies regime change, and it's regime change in a direction that some folks feel like it's high time for and other folks feel like they really um, cannot conscience, cannot, and other folks feel like they really can't countenance. And then um, by the time we start talking about Andrew Young, interestingly and ironically, or talking about Andrew Young again, <laughs> interesting and I, interestingly and ironically, although Andy Young has certainly been in the trenches for a very long while, right? He's no newcomer to politics. He's no newcomer to um, activism and advocacy. But in his role, um, in certain ways, he's more of a he's more of a second or third generation black politician than Maynard is. Because by the time Andy goes to D.C. to work with Carter and then comes back and ultimately becomes mayor here, um, he has the benefit of his African-Americanness not being the very first thing. It's close to the first thing, but not the very first thing um, that is on his mind in terms of what, what his policies might be intended towards. With Maynard, you know, it's stunning the extent to which, particularly in his first term, it's very difficult to almost do anything without this constant imprimatur of kind of what does it mean for black people, which necessarily means it's something wrong for white people, 
and a lack of real kind of depth and nuance there. Are there any parts of this section of the book um, that you would want to highlight for our listeners? There's a section of the book, um, a quote, in fact, that jumped off the page at me. And I have to say that this is my third reading of this book. And I've got marginalia everywhere. And I hadn't marked this. And I just kept scratching my head and thinking, how did I miss this? This is the everything of this book. And maybe this is the everything of our continued kind of local politics conversation. So I'm going to read this to you, okay? It says, Atlanta is the best city in America for black people to live, Maynard Jr. said. Okay, this was in 1973. Not entirely, said Julian Bond, a state representative. This is the best place for blacks in the United States if you're middle class and have a college degree. But if you're poor, it's just like Birmingham, Jackson, or any other place. And it jumped off of the page at me in combination um, with another section where um, there's a critique of Sam Massell's Atlanta's Too Young to Die campaign. And I think it might have been Ivan Allen third who was quoted as saying, um, maybe it was this junior, I can't remember, but essentially saying, what were they talking about about Atlanta's too young to die? Anybody who really knew Atlanta knew that Atlanta wasn't dying. People in Atlanta might die. Sam Assel might die. Major Jackson might die, you know, but Birmingham might die or Savannah might die, but Atlanta won't die. And so when I put those two things together, I started thinking about how interesting this was, right? Atlanta is this place that despite all kinds of class-based and race-based strife has this kind of shared ethos might not be the right word, but certainly kind of shared attitude about how it's always striving, kind of always on the rise. There's something around the corner for you too, right? There's this, there's something about the history of this city, you know, dating back to the New South, and I would say continuing to this day, for better or for worse, right? Even in the midst of the deepest inequality, there's this this notion that like, but your lottery ticket could be right around the corner. Come to Atlanta and see if you might be able to cash it in. And I think that there's something that's really deeply meaningful about that because that promise is embraced across race. It has been for a very long time, right? It's even, I would say, been embraced across regionalism, like the, the, the exponential rise in population in this place is not because Atlantans are reproducing themselves. It's because other people from other places are coming here. And the larger single driver of that still continues to be African-American reverse migration. And yet, it is also one of the most unequal in terms of access to basic needs and amenities, and certainly in terms of income, it is one of the most unequal places in the nation as well. So how do you hold both of those things at the same time? Of course there's going to be tension. Interestingly and ironically, of course, at the same time, there's also going to be like hope and possibility. 
Um, but I think if there's anything that really kind of leapt out at me, it is that this section really marks a, a shift into a kind of contemporary era for Atlanta. And it actually is an era in which we still reside, I think. I think that this is an era that we still live in. It is an era of potential and prosperity, and certainly even in the city proper, which is only, what, a tenth of the size of the metro area. Um, you know, the population is growing in the center city. Um, wealth is growing in the center city. Um, that means that certain kinds of amenities are improving in the center city, and it means, unfortunately, it shouldn't go with wealth or not, but that services in certain ways are improving in the center city, and it also is the place where we continue to have a place, not the only place, but a place where we continue to have um, stunning levels of lack of access to um, the kinds of things that people need, good schools, great health care, fair, reliable um, policing. That sense of prosperity or potential, I guess, when it comes to Atlanta, and I guess the, the continued feeling around that from Maynard's uh, initial um, tenure as mayor up through now, I guess like that, that feels like the, the almost tangible emotion that you get when you're in Atlanta, when you land at Hartsfield-Jackson Airport, right? And you venture off into wherever you're going to venture off. It, it feels like that sense of, of being made anew, um, or the possibilities of that, like that, that always feels very um, within arm's reach of of being here in Atlanta. So I guess that's been a bit of a, you know, of of a of a filter through my eyes as an Atlanta native. I, I will admit that. And I guess what this book pointed out for me, um, in many ways, that I really had not. Well, I hadn't known, I didn't live through this era, so I didn't really know a lot of it firsthand. But what this book did point out to me is that Maynard's first term was filled with lots of, um, lots of, lots of challenges. It was a very tumultuous first term, um, from the campaign itself to the challenges with um, the white population of Atlanta and the newspapers and everything else, but also with with respect to the Atlanta missing and murdered children. And I, and I guess the symbolism of what Maynard and his mayoral tenure represents far outstretches what the reality of that feels like upon reading this text now. And I think this, this book really highlights that, at least for, for me. I would agree that what Maynard represented as the first black mayor of a Southern American city, um, is not to be underestimated, right? And it certainly um, is a legacy that will continue whatever one thinks of Maynard as a man and as a politician. But I think that you're right in pointing out that what actually happened during his mayorships, um, certainly the, the, the first tenure, as you point out, but even in the second tenure, right, was a lot more complicated than just um, kind of making it right for everybody. To be fair, 
Um, it's not possible in certain ways to make it right for everybody. But to also be fair, there are some really staunch and, and I think, legitimate critiques. And I think that the two that you point out, in particular, the garbage worker strike, and most certainly um, the response to the missing and murdered children, um, cannot just be brushed aside. We are still grappling with the collective trauma of the missing and murdered children and the, 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 the nature of the unresolved, the unresolved nature of that, right? And it's not just unresolved because of some, you know, you know, whodunit kind of fiction. It's unresolved because people don't have the trust that there was a full effort to resolve it. And that had largely to do with this perception that the optics of being a city too busy to hate, the optics of being a city where the most important thing is how you do business and can you do business and can you make a dollar. Um, don't that that it does not jibe with always making certain that it is a place where the quality of life for its residents, most especially the least of those, is well protected. Um, and I think that that is a that is a contradiction not only of Maynard's uh, mayorship, but also, quite frankly, it is a contradiction that persists in Atlanta, right? It's a contradiction that persists from coast to coast across the nation. And that is, certainly we understand that business interests fund um, much of what is necessary to live within a city. People need jobs, right? People need tax base. People need certain sorts of infrastructure. But we also understand that people need to be safe, that people need um, care, that people need health care and good food and good food close by and all of these other kinds of things that are not necessarily always going to be driven by business interests. And so leadership that doesn't prioritize those needs is going to be soundly critiqued. I think it's going to be soundly critiqued for all time. I also want to point out this deep and interesting challenge of being the mayor of a city like Atlanta. Um, Atlanta is often characterized as the kind of anti-Georgia or the exception in Georgia or an outlier in Georgia, right? And it's not about geography. It's about, um, it's about the politics of the state around the city. Um, and while often now we assume we understand it's implicit that we mean the politics of the state around the metro area, um, that wasn't always the case. So you've got this little bubble. You've got this little bubble with some reach towards proportionate representation in terms of the population, proportionate representation in government, right, in politics, um, in in bureaucracy, to some extent in business, to some degree. Um, never proportionate, but, but certainly better than it had been in years past. Um, but it's a bubble. And so in order to get the funding and protection and, um, you know, transportation, it's the infrastructure, et cetera, that you need at the state level, um, you have to have alliance there. And that has always proved problematic. And it has always proved problematic at a regional level as well. So I, I don't want in any way to come across as defensive of Maynard or any other mayor because I think that there are sound critiques 
I also want to be really clear that I think it's kind of nonsensical the way that these people are expected to be miracle makers within this broader context that is deeply problematic and deeply wedded to certain sorts of inequities. Um, And I think that if we're going to look, we have to look at kind of all of that um, in order to understand, you know, how Atlanta politics have worked. Um, I also think it's important to see, even between, you know, the beginning of this Section 6 and the end of it, how we are moving farther and farther and farther away from a simple cult of personality. So we start this section, right, thinking about this relationship between Maynard Jackson and Sam Estell, um, the mayor and the vice mayor, although um, it's certainly not working in tandem in the way that we tend to think about somebody and their vice, and then um, their vice, whomever, their deputy. Um, And then um, what we see is this, you know, black kind of economic elite making decisions about who should be supported, who should run, what that's going to look like. We see this completely outsized influence of Robert Woodruff um, as, you know, and Coca-Cola. But as we move forward in time, we see more and more and more of this press towards kind of grassroots power. And I think that that is also really interesting. So you're not going to have the same kind of decision-making that is just, you know, very much at the top about, like, who's going to run things and that they're going to do this without any level of consent among the governed. That is really being um, pushed against. And we just see leaning, right? We just see leaning through the course of this section. By the, I would say by the time we get to, you know, our contemporary time, we're seeing a direct repudiation of the notion that one person gets to speak for us all, whether they're elected or not. We're seeing a repudiation of the notion that one person gets to decide that a business interest or a particular interest is more important than whatever's happening in this local community, even among, you know, severely marginalized and disenfranchised people. So there is a shift that is happening. And I would say that it feels to me like this, this 1973 campaign election is probably a starting point for that. Thank you to Kalinda Lee. We get such a layered view of Maynard Jackson in this part of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. Luckily, for those of us who want to learn more, we have access to Maynard Jackson's mayoral records. Tiffany Atwater Lee of the Atlanta University Center Robert W. Woodruff Library tells us how we can learn more about Maynard Jackson as mayor. So my name is Tiffany Atwater Lee. I'm the assistant head of the Archives Research Center at the Atlanta University Center Woodruff Library. Um, in that role, I am responsible for outreach initiatives, including instruction, uh, reference services, and exhibits. Tell me some backstory about 
the the Manor Jackson archives, as well as how you got involved with um, with the archives. Um, so the Manor Jackson Merrill Administrative Records um, is a collection that consists of the records during the time that Manor Jackson served as mayor of Atlanta. Um, the collection spans from around 1968 to 1994 um, and covers a lot of uh, different aspects of his time in office, um, some of which includes um, the creation of MARTA, um, the expansion of Hartsville International um, Airport, um, the Atlanta Missing and Murdered files, as well as um, the Atlanta Olympics, so how, um, how Atlanta got into the bidding for the uh, 1996 Centennial Olympics. Um, so it covers a large range of his political career here in Atlanta um, and covers a little bit of uh, his time and his experience with um, the Atlanta University Center as he is a graduate of Morehouse College. So that goes into a little bit of how we acquired the collection um, as far as him being affiliated with the AUC. Um, personally, I'm involved because this is one of our many collections that the Archives Research Center holds as we collect uh, the contributions and achievements of African Americans and the African diaspora with special emphasis on the American South and the Atlanta University uh, Center schools and institutions. Um, so that's kind of like my role is to help uh, researchers find materials uh, related to the many collections that we have within the repository. So for our listeners out there who may not be familiar, I know you mentioned some of the topics that are covered in it, but I guess how is it organized or broken down? I guess how, how do we begin to access uh, this collection of materials? Yeah, so the collection is divided into what we as archivists call series. And what series are, are just kind of like groupings of materials to better help the researcher understand what they're about to delve into. So the Maynard Jackson papers or the Merrill Administrative Records are um, organized into six different series. And those series include his vice mayoral records, his first and second term, his third term, his speeches and speaking requests, his campaigns and photographs. So those are the six um, series. And within those series, you can find uh, materials such as newspaper clippings, correspondence, committee updates, um, proclamations, and things that really get at to the actual um, activities that himself as well as uh, those around him were engaging in for uh, essentially to execute his plans as mayor for Atlanta. Um, the collection itself is around 273 linear feet. So um, if you put that in boxes, this is about um, almost 500 boxes of materials um, in this collection. So it's very big. Um, and because of that, that is another reason why series are important to be able to allow the researchers to kind of get down to the nitty gritty of what they're looking at. And of course, the easiest way to do that is through the years that you're looking at. So it's you're looking for uh, when he expanded MARTA, you'll probably be looking in the third term um, as mayor, um, those series. So that's pretty much how it's um, organized. And we also have what we call uh, for archivists um, finding aids, which are inventories that really kind of explain the collection even more in detail, including 
what types of materials you can expect to find in all of these series. And those are available online via our website um, at aucpr.edu slash archives. Um, and so you can go there and find the Maynard Jackson Finding Aid and really get into all the different uh, materials that you can expect to find within the collection overall. I feel like this is a unique peek into history, if you will, when we think about um, the notion of a public official's papers and correspondences and all of the things that helped, I guess, um, define that, that tenure in office. But as someone like yourself who has seen a lot of this material a lot of different times, um, what what stands out to you as one or two things that you thought were interesting about this collection? One of the things that stands out to me would be um, just, I guess, a little backstory for me. So I grew up in Atlanta, um, but clearly after uh, the reign of Mayor Jackson. And when you're looking at his collection, literally every mayor that has come after Mayor Jackson appears in his collection. So to really see um, that connection that Maynard Jackson has with mentoring and fostering the next group of politicians to help move and push Atlanta forward and seeing it in his collection is something that I wasn't expecting when I first started my position to see. But there is beauty in seeing that because you can see a lot of um, what he envisioned for Atlanta comes across not only in the works and the acts that he did, but the people that he took under him um, and what they eventually did to move and push Atlanta forward. So that for me is one of the coolest things is seeing that community and that network that, you know, in politics you see it from afar, but to see it in the actual papers, to see the correspondence, to see um, Mayor Shirley Franklin, or she wasn't mayor then, but you know, uh, conversing with Maynard Jackson via um, correspondence is something that's very special. And you can see that that bond and that understanding of uh, politics, I guess, is something just really um, authentic about it, I guess, and seeing it in those papers. Because, again, no one is expecting that in 30, 40 years somebody will be looking at this correspondence. So you, you see an unfiltered approach um, in his political career. Well, Tiffany, as we wrap up, um, I mean, I think for this entire project, um, we've really been focusing on legacy and history, obviously. Um, but as someone who is a, a caretaker of history, what did you want people to know about the importance of preserving history in this type of way and in doing this kind of work? I would say the biggest important is that importance is that when you look at archives and the reason for our existence is transparency and in particular in government. Um, so the idea of modern archives stems from the French Revolution and realizing that government archives are not private but public as they tell the history and the story of those that the government governs. And so by having archives, you have that transparency and you're able to gain this information that otherwise could go unnoticed, undetailed, unfiltered, unchecked, unquestioned. Um, and so by collecting these materials and, and most importantly, providing access to anyone who wishes to see them, you're giving the power back to the people, especially in the sense of in politics, the people who elected um, uh, these politicians to go back, uh, reevaluate and see what work did politicians do in the name of 
the people. Um, so it's something very important. Archives allow for researchers to go back and see the nitty-gritty of history, um, to see the things that essentially no one thought would be preserved and saved. And what that does is allows for the world to essentially move forward um, by being able to look at who they were in the past. Thank you to Tiffany Atwater Lee. Thank you to Kalinda Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Atlanta Legacy Makers podcast. And I hope you're enjoying the book Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn. Part six is in the books, pun intended. And next up is part seven, entitled Olympic City. So let's keep reading and we'll talk about it on the next episode. Until then. I'm Floyd Hall, and forever, I love Atlanta. Atlanta Legacy Makers is an initiative led by Central Atlanta Progress and the City of Atlanta. Special thanks to author Gary M. Pomerantz, lecturer at Stanford University in the graduate program in journalism. We heard Gary at the very beginning of this episode talking about some of the backstory of writing where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. And we're thankful and thrilled to have Gary's perspective throughout this project. Special thanks to our amazing partners, Atlanta Downtown Improvement District, Atlanta Public Schools, Constellations, Gene Kansas Commercial Real Estate, the Ivan Allen College of Liberal Arts at Georgia Tech, One Atlanta, and Supporter Report. Atlanta Legacy Makers is hosted and produced by Floyd Hall, that's me, Music by Smith and Cash. Last but not least, thank you, Atlanta. <laughs>